0: you are listening to Rio Bravo Q Week podcast your weekly dose of knowledge brought to you by the Rio Bravo Family Medicine Residency Program in Bakersfield California a UCLA affiliated program sponsored by Clinica Sierra Vista let us be your healthcare home This podcast was created for educational purposes only. Visit your primary care provider for additional medical advice. Hello everyone, welcome
1: to another episode of Rio Bravo Q Week. This is episode 162 and we're going to be talking about neonatal early onset sepsis. And I have two wonderful guests today before I introduce them. Uh, Let me introduce myself. My name is Hector Arias, and I'm a faculty member of the Rio Bravo Family Medicine Residency Program, and this podcast is is called Rio Bravo Q Week. So I want to welcome my guests. Today, we have two wonderful guests. One is Dr. Kuhner and also Dr. Schlerth.
0: Can you please introduce yourself?
2: Yes, I'm Dr. Katherine Schlerth, and I'm also a faculty member here.
0: Hi, I'm Love Deep Kuhner. And uh, I'm an intern here at the Rio Bravo Family Medicine Program in Bakersfield, California. Yeah. And the last
1: time you listened to Dr. Kuhner, he was not a resident yet, right? <laughs> but now he's a resident. So how are you doing with your residency, Dr. Kuhner?
0: Loving it. Living the dream. Living
1: the dream, Dr. Excellent. Aris. Glad to hear that. So today we're going to be talking about neonatal sepsis.
0: And uh, Dr. Kuhner, you're going to give us an introduction, please. Thank you. Um, So neonatal sepsis is defined as pathogenic bacterial growth from blood or cerebral spinal fluid culture within the first 28 days of life. And neonatal sepsis can be divided into two categories, early onset sepsis, EOS, and late onset. EOS is neonatal sepsis within 72 hours or seven days after birth, depending on the specialist.
2: It is important to recognize that some of the symptoms in the newborn baby can actually, in rare cases, be caused by inborn errors of metabolism or by viral infections. So this always has to be taken into account.
1: Yeah. So it's important to have a a broad differential diagnosis in the case of a sick baby or a newborn. And also, um, it seems like early onset sepsis was increasing for a time and then it's decreasing so what what have you heard about the, the recent statistics Dr. Kuhner
0: yeah, it's really important to know um, you know how common early onset sepsis is according to the CDC infant mortality rate rose for the first time in 20 years in the USA and also in the US the incidence of EOS is 0.5 in a thousand live births and carries a mortality risk of about three percent. Oh yeah. And that zero point five is very important. It's a key
1: number that we're gonna need to calculate. And we're gonna mention that in another episode, but it's gonna be in the Kaiser Permanente uh, calculator. But zero point five is a key number that we have to remember. So and um, so, let's talk about the causes of EOS.
0: Yeah, most infections are due to ascending lower vaginal tract flora. Other causes include intraamniotic infections and maternal hematogenous spread of systemic infections.
2: And we do need to remember that uh, babies who are born prematurely uh, might be a little bit more vulnerable uh, because their immune systems are obviously not as perfected.
0: Yeah. And the group B streptococcus um, strep A galactae accounts for about a third of the infectious organisms, followed by E. coli, which accounts for about a fourth, and veridin strep account for about one-fifth of infections. Cases of E. coli are seen more often with prolonged rupture of membranes and intrapartum antibiotic exposure. Other notable infections are listeria, monocytogenes, um, coagulase-negative staphylococci, and herpes simplex virus, as well as enteroviruses.
2: And it is important when you're talking about uh, GBS to realize that the intrapartum prophylaxis appropriately applied does not mean that a baby baby over a week of age is immune from GBS. Babies can acquire this after they go home and are potentially exposed in different ways.
1: Yeah, and actually we learned that even 8% of the patients who get adequate prophylaxis they can have Neonatal sepsis, even 8%, even after appropriate prophylaxis. So now that we're talking about GBS, you know, it's one of the most uh, common bacteria in these cases. So um, we know that it's very prevalent, very common. So, um, Dr. Kuhner, do you have any comment about that?
0: Yeah, approximately 30% of women have vaginal and rectal GBS colonization, and 50% will transmit it to the newborn. Without maternal antibiotic treatment, 1 to 2% of those infants ultimately develop EOS. The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, ACOG, recommends universal culture based screenings for GBS at 36 to 37 weeks and six days, regardless of mode delivery, with the optimal time for screening at 36 weeks and uh, between 36 weeks and 36 weeks and six days. Okay. So GBS bacteriuria, that's something
1: important that we have to mention because we screen all pregnant women with a urine culture at the beginning of the pregnancy. So on the first the first trimester or the first prenatal visit, we do a urine culture. So if we detect GBS bacteriuria, then we have to treat it. Whether the patient is symptomatic or asymptomatic, it doesn't matter. You always have to treat it. Uh, the only criteria that you have to meet is that the Bacteria is above 105 colony forming units per milliliter. If it's above that, then you have to treat it to treat this bacteria. You don't have to treat it if it's asymptomatic and the patient has a GBS bacteria less than 105 CFU per milliliter. In any case, whether it's asymptomatic or symptomatic, whether you treat it or not, you, have to, you still have to give prophylaxis in intrapartum. So And you don't have to perform GBS screening later in life or later in the pregnancy. You just know that the patients had bacteria, then you have to give prophylaxis.
0: Yeah, there's some specific indications um, as well um, for the intrapartum antibiotic prophylaxis a previous neonate with invasive GBS status, uh, disease, excuse me, um, as well as positive GBS culture unless C-section is performed before the rupture of membranes and GBS bacteriuria at any point during the current pregnancy, as you just mentioned, Dr. Ariaza.
1: Yeah. So and um, so if we have GBS bacteriuria, we also learn that we don't have to do, well, I already mentioned it, we don't have
0: to do GBS screening later in the pregnancy. One of the things is if GBS status is unknown, which happens quite often, um at least one of the following criteria must be met for intrapartum um, antibiotic prophylaxis, and it's prematurity, rupture of membranes more than 18 hours, intrapartum fever, or GBS positive in a previous pregnancy.
2: And this is intrapartum fever in the mother, I would assume. Correct. Since the baby isn't born yet. And that's the that's actually the
0: most associated um, risk factor. With EOS, is mother's uh, uh, antepartum temperature.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a good indicator. So um, so I want to mention a little bit about nucleic acid amplification test, or NAT. And it is not recommended in pregnancy to determine colonization status. However, if NAT is obtained in the intrapartum period, you have to give intrapartum antibiotic prophylaxis if it's positive. So um, you must also give prophylaxis if it's negative, and you have any of the risk factors that we already mentioned. So if gestational age is below thirty-seven weeks, if there is rupture of membrane more than eighteen hours, and if there is a maternal fever more than one hundred point four Fahrenheit. Okay, so GBS prophylaxis is something that we have to to talk about because it has is one of the most important. Um, preventive measures to for, to prevent EOS. So what is considered adequate intrapartum antibiotic prophylaxis? Uh,
2: this would consist of at least four hours of intrapartum um, <coughs> parenteral medication with either penicillin or ampicillin. Uh, if there is a vague history of some sort of a cutaneous reaction to ampicillin or amoxicillin, uh, one could use cepazolin. Um, but if there's been a anaphylactic reaction, even those those do uh, abate over time. Uh, we would probably choose vancomycin as our intrapartum prophylaxis uh, in the absence of clindamycin sensitivities.
1: Yeah, and the one we should not use is erythromycin because uh, of the high resistance risk. Yeah, and um, this good that you mentioned the four hours because sometimes we, we we are not sure. And actually, we were re- I was reading that even two hours would be enough, but we take the four hours as the cutoff for adequate prophylaxis.
0: Yeah, and those that timing is important is because it's how the mechanisms. Um, how it reduces the neonatal GBS disease. So it takes some time for it to temporarily temporarily reduce the maternal vaginal GBS colonization, um, as well as preventing colonization of the fetus or newborn surfaces and mucous membranes. It also um, helps by achieving antibiotic levels in the newborn's bloodstream sufficient to suppress the minimum um, inhibitory concentration, the MIC, for eliminating group B streptococci.
1: Okay. So it, you you take that that much time to to accomplish those um, those goals, right? To surpass the minimum inhibitory concentration, so surpass the make. Yeah. Okay. So well, let's talk a little bit about the diagnosis. We know that this can be challenging because babies sometimes they can have some signs and symptoms, and sometimes we suspect it and we we start antibiotics right away because we don't want to wait for any cultures. But um, So when do we suspect uh, sepsis, Dr. Schlereth?
2: Well, if you're looking at the baby, one of the baby's chief occupations after birth is eating. So a child who isn't eating as vigorously as you would expect would be a child that raises suspicions. Uh, Obviously, if the baby is tachypnic, tachycardic, has temperature instability, either too high or too low a temperature, this would also be concerning for you if you have a need for supplemental oxygen uh, uh, and uh, no other reason for that. Uh, or if the baby seems to be a little lethargic, um, these would all be circumstances on, under which you're interest would be picked and you would be concerned about uh, the occurrence of sepsis. And uh, I might add that especially with older children, but theoretically with people who uh, deliver a lot of babies as well, uh, the clinical instinct that the uh, physician has can be a very powerful uh, way of uh, becoming suspicious and uh, following through with one's suspicions. Uh, It's almost as good as a lab test.
1: Yeah, so you have to see a lot of babies to recognize a sick baby, right? So that's why as medical students and residents, so we have to see as many babies as we can to learn how a a healthy baby looks like and what a sick baby looks like so we can uh, use that in our favor and in our patient's favor as well. So also, Mm -hmm. I have to admit that I was a little um, ignorant and I'm glad that we have this podcast because I learn all the time. So hypoglycemia, uh, should not be considered a sign of EOS. Sometimes, uh, I think I've taught this uh, by mistake to some medical students, if if the patient is hypoglycemic, might have sepsis. But actually, the most recent article that I read from the AFP, it says that it should not be considered a sign of EOS.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. So uh, a quick way I try to remember what is um, signs of it, it's tacky-tacky tampon respirations. Tacky-tacky respirations and temp. Um, That's just a quick way I try to remember it. Um, So it's very important to diagnose um, early onset sepsis and diagnosing it early enough can help. But the only true way to diagnose it is um, through blood or cerebral fluid cultures. And we can't wait that long normally, but that is actually the only true way to actually um, diagnose it. Some non effective laboratory tests include CBCs, C-reactive proteins, as well as surface cultures, gastric aspirate analysis, or urine cultures. Um, those those really have not shown any statistical significance to uh, rule in EOS, although, spoiler alert, CRP, um, two values of a, a normal CRP level, 48 hours apart, is very sensitive in ruling it out. Yeah, and something that you mentioned also,
1: you know, some of these patients, they might have meningitis. Actually, 10% of the patients, they have meningitis and, air, and early onset sepsis. But out of those 10%, 9%, they don't have any bacteremia. So that's why it's important to, to use the, the CSF culture as well.
0: Yeah. Most infants will generally show signs of EOS GBS infection within the initial 24 hours of birth, with approximately 85% exhibiting symptoms during this time frame. So waiting for cultures and or signs can delay life-saving treatment.
2: And whereas if we're talking about sepsis in an older baby, uh, the urine culture might be quite important if it's appropriately collected.
1: Yeah, yeah. And that's going to be an excellent episode that you guys have to listen to later because Dr. Schlereth is going to be teaching us about late-onset sepsis soon. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, let's talk about the management. So we have guidelines by the American Academy of Pediatrics, and other important organizations. So, Deep, can you give us some lights about that?
0: Absolutely. According to the American Academy of Pediatrics, the management of term and late-term infants is undertaken via the clinical condition assessment and categorical risk factor assessment and the multivariate risk assessment. So, As a part of the 2014 AAP guidelines, the categorical risk factor assessment is more of an algorithmic approach based on the presence or absence of specific risk factor threshold values, such as an ill-appearing infant, mother diagnosed with chorioamnionitis, mother GBS positive with inadequate intrapartum prophylaxis, rupture of membranes greater than 18 hours, or birth before the 37 weeks of gestation. So based on
1: those um, those criteria that you mentioned, then we can make a decision if we are gonna do, we're gonna do give antibiotics or do labs or we're gonna do just observation, right?
0: Yeah. So according to um, those guidelines, it's a very um, precise flow sheet. So you would follow it. precisely to get the results that they have used for those studies. So, for example, if the mother is GBS positive with inadequate intrapartum antibiotic prophylaxis, but no other risk factor, the algorithm essentially breaks down to if the infant is ill-appearing or the mother is diagnosed with chorioamnionitis, then in those cases, lab tests should be performed and empirical antibiotics should be started.
1: Okay, Lovedeep, I agree with you. In those cases, you have to start antibiotics. And it is difficult to refrain from using antibiotics. When we don't need them uh, but we have to remember that they are not always needed and they can even cause damage let me recap what you said love deep and this is taken from the american academy of pediatrics the article is called management of neonates born at 35 weeks gestation with suspected or proven early onset bacterial sepsis and it was published on december 1st 2018 and in this context any newborn infant who is ill-appearing or when the mother has a clinical diagnosis of chorioamnionitis, then laboratory testing must be ordered, and empirical antibiotic therapy should be started. So this, that's why exactly what you said. So but then, if we have a mother who is colonized with GBS, and she received inadequate in intrapartum antibiotic prophylaxis with a duration of rupture of membranes more than 18 hours, or birth before 37 weeks gestation, then you have to order a laboratory. And, you know, you, you can see there are several red flags in that in that group of patients. So the rupture of memory more than 18 hours and being born before 37 weeks. So, and then you have to order labs in those cases. So, but if we have a mother who is colonized with GBS and she received inadequate intrapartum antibiotic prophylaxis, so IAP, But with no additional risk factors, in those cases, you need observation in the hospital for 48 hours or more, okay? So that's important to remember. You don't need to use antibiotics in those cases. And we're just taking into account, like, all these patients are are well-appearing.
2: But we do need to realize that many patients think that this covers the baby throughout the postpartum period. They need to know that the baby could, as mentioned before, still develop GBS sepsis uh, after a week.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. And we were talking about that, that, you know, um, babies can get GBS from other sources too, like not only the vagina, right, like later in life. Yeah. All right. So uh, thank you so much, guys, for this uh, conversation I think it's been very enriching for me. I think I've learned something new today. And um, do you want to give any final words?
2: We could talk about the fact that uh, the use of antibiotics is being conserved and used more appropriately. And this would be important because some Studies have shown that use of antibiotics in the first year of life does uh, some harm to the GI flora that's been obtained by the baby uh, during passage through the vaginal canal and therefore might be a healthy flora. And so we do want to have our babies have healthy floras so that uh, the occurrence of obesity would be reduced. And so there's a little glimmer of hope there that hopefully more research will a compound.
0: Yeah. To add on to that, um, there have been studies shown that um, babies born via C-section um, that are exposed to fecal matter, fe- uh, fecal matter from the mother, um, have been shown to have less incidences of um, asthma and obesity. Although nothing is completely um, set in stone yet, but there is some promising data for this. <laughs>
1: I'm laughing because I was born as but be a c-section and have both obesity and asthma so too bad I didn't get any piece of poop from my mom you know
0: <laughs> no cc's or feces.
1: <laughs> love that yeah. thank you so much guys for this discussion and I hope everybody liked it and uh, we'll see you again during the next episode
2: now we conclude episode number 162 early onset sepsis introduction. Dr. Kuhner explained that GBS plays a significant role in the pathophysiology of EOS. Dr. Schlerth discussed the importance of clinical evaluation and Dr. Ariasa explained what to do in cases of positive urine culture for GBS in early pregnancy. Don't miss part two of this discussion. This week, we thank Hector Ariasa, Love Deep Kuhner, and Katherine Schlerth. Audio editing by Adrienne Silva.
0: Even without trying, every night you go to bed a little wiser. Thanks for listening to Rio Bravo Q Week podcast. We want to hear from you. Send us an email at riobravoqweek at clinicasierravista.org or visit our website riobravofmrp.org slash qweek. See you next week.